hopefully there's a theme that you see developing here, the, a theme of obedience, obedience and baptism. Uh, sometimes when you get missionaries in, you give them about two minutes and then, uh, then you forget all about them. But I wanted you to see how vital uh, of work this is that Brandon and Hannon are doing. And not everybody is signing up to go to Jakarta. Um, and so be thankful that they are an extension of Mission View, but I want you to be praying for them because it's not an easy environment for them to go to. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. It is like three minutes till 11 o'clock, and how could Pastor Steve ever do a message in 15 minutes? It would be on par with Jesus, uh, Jesus walking on water. I realize that uh, for me to do that. But bear with me as we put a capstone to Nehemiah. It will be an abbreviated message. Uh, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 10. And let me just give you very briefly, for those of you that are guests that haven't been a part of the Nehemiah series, they've been through a whole process of going back to the people, their land and going and building a wall. And this was a miraculous thing that took place because of where they were. They were just a bunch of selfish people that were then assimilated and, and they were brought into this place where they were going to accomplish something. And God did something miraculous in their heart. And by the time we get to chapters 9 and 10, we see that not only did they do a task for God, but they did it in obedience for God, and now their hearts are completely there. Their hearts are like, I want to follow God. I want to serve him. And we've seen already in, our, in, our, in this book that these people are willing to stand for six hours in the reading of God's word. We'll go over a little bit, but not six hours. They were willing to throw themselves into worship. Their whole body, their whole, uh, they were willing to bow before God. They were willing to raise their hands. They were willing to take what they learned from God's word and put it into practice. And so what we find in chapter 10, which is the capstone of our, uh, of our passage today, or of where we're going to go, we're not going to be reading the last, we're not going to be studying the last three chapters, but we are going to be finishing up here in chapter 10, and we're going to see that the people of Israel come under conviction in five areas to be obedient to God. And so I want to challenge you that this is not just them, but I believe in every one of these areas are areas that we can be obedient to God as well. So here's the first area of obedience. It's in chapter 10, verse 28. And it was in submission to God's word. Listen to what it says. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, joined with their brothers, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments that the Lord, the God of the Lord, of our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Now, what happens here is something that was completely unprecedented. They had, if you were here last week, Pastor Bruce talked about, they actually wrote out a contract. And what we see in the chapter 10 is that there's 84 people that are mentioned here. And what they did is they legally bound themselves to making a commitment to obeying everything that God had commanded them to do. 
Now, if you make a commitment to some people are in men of iron and it's one man with another man and they've written out a little contract that they are going to uh, be obedient to God's word. That's one good thing. But this is taking it to a whole new level. It'd be like going to the courthouse and having it in a legal document. And in that legal document, you're binding yourself to obeying God's word. This is how serious this was for them. Now, when we think about that applying to ourselves, I don't know necessarily that we have to go to the courthouse to make a legally binding document that we're going to be obedient to God's word. But what we can do is we do find that there's times in our life where we say, you know what, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. And that we are going to make a decision as of this day that this is, this is a time of the past is, is, is behind us and the time that's going forward. I love Brittany's testimony. She's saying this is new. This is a new chapter for me in following Christ, in following God's word. And so we make decisions in terms of being committed to God's word and allowing that to regulate and govern our life. Here's my question. Are we being committed to obedience to God's word? So that's the first area of obedience. Here's the second area of obedience. It was in verse 30. Take a look. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, for some of us, we have no idea what in the world they're talking about. But let me tell you what a practice was for them. It was very common in their day for them to intermarry with the neighboring countries and for there to be a mix between the Jewish people, and that other nationality. And God said, I don't want that. I don't want that to happen at all. Now, it wasn't that God was against interracial marriages. What he was against was the fact that their, the, the mixing in with foreigners brought foreign gods, and as a result, it drew them away from the one true living God. And so God said, I don't want you to do that. In 1 Kings this was something that was a problem with Solomon. It says that he loved many foreign women. In fact, we're told that God gave the instruction to Solomon. He said, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. See, foreign gods brought a foreign morality. And so this is what God was against. And so the people of Israel are saying, no more. No more are we going to do it our way. No more. We're going to do it God's way, and we're going to stay true, and we're going to marry those of like mind, of those that are of like faith in terms of serving our God. Now, some of us would look at that and say, well, how does that apply to us today? I think it's very relevant because what God wants is holy relationships. God wants holy relationships here. And sometimes, and I'm going to speak to the singles now, sometimes in our singleness, we start to worry about the biological clock that's ticking away. And we're, we're, I haven't gotten a man, or I haven't gotten a woman. I haven't found a relationship. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves maybe thinking about possibly compromising and that I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to have a relationship, to have a husband, to have a wife. And I will tell you right now that the end result will be far worse than being single if you compromise in your faith. 
What God wants is holy relationships. If you're married, he wants you to stay married. If you are, if you are single, you may pursue relationships, but it may be that he would want you to be single. You are to make sure that all relationships are obedient to God. And so that would be the question. Are we being obedient to God in our relationships? Two down, three to go. Number three, they were to honor the Sabbath. Take a look at verse 31. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grains on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy, them, buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the extra extraction of every debt. Now I could spend a lot of time on this point, but here's the main point. There was the Ten Commandments. Remember Moses coming down off the mountain and he gave him Ten Commandments? Do you know what the fourth commandment was? The fourth commandment was that you are to keep, remember the holy, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now there were five aspects for the Jewish people when they thought about keeping the Sabbath. Number one, and you keep this in mind because we'll make a parallel in a minute. Number one is to remember the Sabbath. Keep it in mind. This is something that you are to think about is that there is to be a Sabbath day and don't forget it. Number two, you're to keep it holy. The word holy means to be set apart. I want you to keep it holy. Number three, you are not to work on the seventh day. In other words, you get to work six days, but on the seventh day, you are to rest. Third, fourth, is that you aren't to compromise. You're not supposed to get somebody else to work for you. That's kind of going, that's an end around. And number five, just as God rested, you're to rest. Just as God reflected, you are to reflect. And so the people of Israel are saying, you know what? We're not going to do business on God's day anymore. And their day was Saturday. And so they said they're going to make a commitment. They had been disobedient to it before, but now they were going to be obedient in keeping this day holy. Now, I know for a lot of believers, we think, now the Sabbath doesn't apply to us anymore. That was an Old Testament concept. Some people believe that, some people don't. I do believe there's an element of the Sabbath that we need to recognize. I will say that the command has changed, and I will tell you why in a minute. It looks a little bit different. The main reason is because of Jesus. There was a day in Mark, in Matthew chapter 12, where the disciples were walking down the road, and they took some grain, and it was on the Sabbath, and they were popping the kernels, and they were putting it in their mouth, and technically that was work. And the religious community came to Jesus and said, why are your disciples working on the Sabbath? Now, I'm not going to give a full explanation of that passage, but I want to point out this one thing that Jesus stated. Jesus said this, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so what we learn here is that the Old Testament Sabbath was pointing to the one in whom we would have the ultimate rest. That's why Jesus said, come to me, you who are, we you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. He was the true Sabbath. He was the fulfillment. Now inject uh, Jesus into all five aspects of the Sabbath. Remember Jesus. Keep our relationship with Jesus holy. We are to rest in Christ. 
We are not to compromise this relationship, and we are to reflect on Christ. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Do I believe it's wise for us to take time to rest? Absolutely. So here's the question. Are you observing a Sabbath rest? That's really difficult in our world because we have employers that are demanding more and more and more of us, and we have to evaluate for ourselves are we keeping a Sabbath rest where we're keeping Christ as a focus? Here's the number four thing that they were obedient to. They were obedient to assuming the responsibility of their temple, their house. Take a look at verse 32. We also take it on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third, third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. For the showbread, for the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, the appointed feast, the holy things, the, and the sin offerings to make atonement. That's what the one-third shekel went for. For Israel and for all the work of the house of God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of God according to our Father's house at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Now what does all that mean? Let me give you the simple principle. The simple principle was that they were now being obedient to take an ownership of God's house. See, they were charged a one-third shekel tax. That was a tax. It was to take care of all the ministry that was to happen in the temple. Now when the command was originally given, it was a one-half tax, but because times were hard, they changed it a little bit. And by the time Christ comes on the scene, it'll be back to a half. So taxes changed for them, just like they changed for us. And so, but the point was that this was a way for them to be a part of taking care of the house of God. They were also to take up wood offerings, and wood was something that was a scarce commodity, and so this was a costly thing for them as well. Now, when they were living in disobedience, they basically said, you know what, I'm not going to do this. We'll let somebody else carry the weight. Somebody else can do that. I don't need to do that because it's somebody else's responsibility. Here's the principle that what God is getting to. He wanted them to have buy-in. He wanted them to have ownership of God's house. And the command to, uh, to have this buy-in of the people was something that they had to decide to do. You know, it's true in the church today. We have to have buy-in. We have to choose to whether or not we have buy-in in terms of the, the church and what happens in the church. Now, it's true that there's no longer a temple. We are the temple. The temple has legs. But sometimes even the church has material possessions that remind us of spiritual commitments. For example, a building. Now, we don't own any buildings at Mission View, do we? Well, we do rent. We rent this place. We like it cool in the summer, and we like it hot, a little warmer in the winter. We don't like to see our breath when we are gathering together. And so as a result, we like the lights on. We like the electricity on. We like the heat on. And when there is buy-in, when you give to this ministry, there is a buy-in into the ministry. And so you need to ask yourself, do I have, do I believe in the local church where I have buy-in? If I don't give, then what I'm saying is everybody else can pay that, but I am not going to have the buy-in. 
So we need to ask ourselves, do we have ownership of our church? And here's the fifth thing that they had to be obedient in. It was in giving their first fruits. Take a look at verse 35. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our grounds and the first fruits of all the fruit trees year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who ministers in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, and as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough, of our contribution, the fruit of every tree, wine, oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and bring to the Levites the tithes of our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in our towns where we labor. Now the final area was something that's not familiar to us. They use this phrase called first fruits. First fruits. See, this was different than the temple tax. The temple tax was to take care of property. But this was something that God required of his people to show that they were giving to, of their hearts to the ministry that God had in that town, within that temple. See, there was a first fruits offering. And this first fruits was a tithe. The word tithe means 10%. And so what they were required in the Old Testament to do was to give God their best. They were to give God the best of their crops, the best of their cattle. If they produced olives and olive oil, they were to produce 10% of the best to, to God's work. And they were to put all of that to God's work, giving God their best. God required this for a couple reasons. Number one, I believe it was a sign of gratitude. It was a sign of gratitude that, God, you're the one that richly supplied me, so I am going to give my best to you. The second was an area of trust. It was an area of faith, that they were going to believe that God was going to make provisions for them. In fact, God made it known again and again in the Old Testament that they were to bring their best. By the time... The prophets wrote the book of Malachi. The people weren't giving their best. They were giving lame animals. They were giving God just a partial offering. And by the end of that book, God says this through the prophet. He says to the people, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there might be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour so much blessing out that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and vines in your field will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Now the difference between the Old Testament area of obedience and the people who are making a commitment, yes, we will give our best. The difference between the Old Testament and now is God doesn't require 10%. Nowhere in the New Testament does God command you to give 10%. Now, for some people, that's like, oh, good, man, that would affect me in a drastic way. Well, hold on, Petey, because what God says is even more drastic in the Old than the Old Testament. You see, what it says in 2 Corinthians is that God wants us to give hilariously. He wants us to give generously. He says, he who reaps sparingly will sow sparingly. And why does he say that? 
Because now it's not an issue of I'm not commanding you. You simply do it because you love me. You simply give. Because often the measure of the heart is how we treat our finances. The measure of our heart. And what God wants is for us to give. Now I know for Lee and I, we've always used the Old Testament as kind of foundational. We've said 10%, if that's the foundation in the, New, in the Old Testament in terms of their tithe and the first fruits, that's going to be the first check we're going to write. And even when we had very little money, we always did that as a discipline. Now that's not a sacrifice for us. I'm not boasting, I'm just saying we're at a different economic level where 10% is not a sacrifice, so we have to go beyond that. But that's between us and the Lord. Why do I share it? One, I'm a pastor, and I set the example for you. I believe in obedience to what God is convicting us, or convicting Lee and I to do. And it's up to every individual to say, am I obedient in these areas? I know some people will say, well, I'll, I'll tithe on my time. And I will tithe on my talent, but I'm not going to tithe on my resources. Just understand that if that's your position, there's a heart problem. There's a heart problem because Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. And it's not about what I know. I don't know. Who gives what? But what God wants is for us to give him our best. That's the principle. So we can support people like the bonds. So that we can support other missionaries. So these were the five things that they learned. I wish the book of Nehemiah ended right here. In revival. In revival, it's awesome. Everything is good. But the problem is there's three more chapters that we're not going to study. But I give you, I'm giving you this assignment. Please read them. Because what you're going to find is by the end of by, the, by the, the last chapter, in chapter 13, you're going to find that the people have neglected. They decide they've reneged on their commitment to the Word of God. They start with inter, interracial marriages once again. They neglect the house of God. They neglect the Sabbath. And they stop giving their first fruits. And what they end up being is selfish. They return to selfishness. And what a shame yeah, I can hear people saying, well, Steve, why in the book of Nehemiah? Man, you just devastated the whole book. Why do we even study that? Well, there were some good things. We saw what God does when a leader rises up and says, I'm going to obey the heart of God, and I'm going to follow, and I will lead. We learned what a people will do in following a leader, and they will, they will give with their heart. They will work side by side. And we did see a sense of genuine revival, but it didn't seem to last. Why didn't it last? What went wrong? Well, see, by the end of the Nehemiah, this is what we learn. Unless there is heart change. Unless there is heart change, we will always go back to our old ways. You see, you could go to church, you could pray prayers, you could sing songs, you can even read your Bible for a while. But unless there's heart change, you will go back. See, that's what the prophets in the Old Testament were predicting all over the place. Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? In fact, the heart was so wicked that Ezekiel, the prophet, 
in a vision gained from God, said there, there would be a day in which God would remedy this heart problem. In fact, it says in Ezekiel that there would be heart transplants that God would start to do. You didn't know there was heart transplants in the series. There heart transplant surgery that takes place. Ezekiel, this is, I'm going to read it for myself. I'll read it to you and you determine for yourself. This is what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep the laws. You say, right there is heart transplant. Right in this passage in Ezekiel, there's a heart transplant. See, what Ezekiel was doing is he was pointing to a new day, a better day, in which the Messiah would come, and that would be the ministry of the Messiah. Did you realize that Jesus didn't just come to be a baby in the manger? Did you know that he just didn't come to die on a cross? He did that so that he could have heart transplants for you and I. See, Jesus would come and he would realize that we are sinful people. And that's actually who he hung out with. In Mark chapter 2, it's funny, he was sitting there with the sinners and the tax collectors and the people that were disgusting by the religious community. And the, the religious community was looking at him and saying, what are you doing hanging out with these sinners? And Jesus gives clear intentions at that point. This is what he says. It's not the healthy who need the doctor. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. See, the rough translation is that Jesus is looking at these religious leaders saying, you don't need me. You're the righteous. But these guys, they know they have a bad heart. And I'm a doctor. And I'm coming to give them a new heart. See, that's what the gospel is all about. See, Jesus died on the cross for a purpose. He did it so that he could give each and every one of us a brand new heart, a heart transplant. And my friends, unless there is a heart transplant, we will always go back to our selfish ways. We will always go back to that. Jesus is the one who came to give us new life. He died on the cross so that he could take and pay for our sins. It was a costly thing. It was God the Father saying, I will do this for the sake of all humanity. I will pay a dear cost by giving up my own child for all of humanity. And when Jesus went to the cross, our sins were nailed to the cross. At least it was made available for us. And then when he died and went into the grave, he took him to the grave. And when he rose, he rose to new life, just as we saw in baptism. My friends, that's exactly what he wants to do. But it, it only comes to those that realize that they're sinful. Only to those that realize that they need a Savior. We're going to sing a song right now. I love this song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And in these two verses, I just want you to think about the richness of God. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to pray for the person that would say, 
I want a heart change. Because that's my question. Has God changed your heart? And for those that would want that heart change, I want to pray for you that God would give that to you. But think about what God has done as you think about these two verses.